If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're tackling the Enlightenment, a history-changing intellectual and philosophical movement that swept across Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. Our expert for today's episode is Professor Richie Robertson, whose books include The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted to us on our various social media platforms. Putting your questions to Richie was our production editor, Spencer Mizzen. Well, Richie, um, I'd I'd like to start with a question from um, Nathan Halsey, which was submitted on Facebook. Now, um, you might have to bear with me a little bit here, but Nathan asks... I'm not very enlightened regarding the Enlightenment, so can you please enlighten me regarding this enlightening time in our history? Now, I think that Nathan is kind of asking, what was the Enlightenment? And and it goes about saying that that is an enormous question, but I was wondering if you could give our listeners a, a, say, a five-minute overview of this philosophical and intellectual movement. I mean, what was it, when did it happen, and where did it happen? Okay, I'll do my best, and I can no doubt amplify what I see in response to later questions. The Enlightenment was three things. First, it was an intellectual movement, and that makes one think of the expression the age of reason. But that only gets half the truth. The Enlightenment was about reason, still more about using one's own reason to question authority. Um, In 1784, the philosopher Kant, whom I hope to see more about later, 
published an, an, an essay answering the question, what is enlightenment? His answer is very famous, but it bears repeating. Um, he said, the watchword of enlightenment is dare to know, have the courage to use your own reason. That is, think for yourself, don't passively accept what authority tells you. So that's reason versus authority, using your own mind. But alongside reason, the Enlightenment had another wing associated with it, and that was feeling. That's what the cliché, the age of reason, leaves out. From the beginning of the 18th century onwards, Enlightenment philosophers were interested in feeling, what they called um, especially sympathy, sometimes they spoke of the passions. They were interested in sympathy as the bond that holds society together and brings different people together. Adam Smith was a moral philosopher as well as an economist, and his first book was The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is all about sympathy. The Wealth of Nations is absolutely not a treatise on cold transactional rationality, as people think. Smith begins by saying that the impulse to deal with each other, to trade and truck, that's his word, is built into human nature. So reason and sympathy conjoined, and laterally, the Enlightenment was looking for a way of understanding human nature that focused on the link between the mind and the body, reason and the emotions. But having said that the Enlightenment was an intellectual movement, I want to say that it was also two other things. First, the Enlightenment was um, a great um, shift in people's outlook on the world, and that's sometimes called the disenchantment of the world. The, terms come, the term comes from the German sociologist Max Weber, and Weber was referring to the increasing disbelief in magic, the increasing disbelief in the supernatural. We're not talking about the decline of religion necessarily, but certainly of the, a decline of the belief in the supernatural, the belief in a, in a future life, and so on. And a big movement, movement like that is much more difficult to account for. In a way, the Enlightenment was carried on this wave rather than causing it. And thirdly, something people think about too little, the Enlightenment was also practical. Um, administrators and rulers tried to improve the quality of human life by improving public order, by attending to the infrastructure of roads, canals, communications generally, by enforcing the criminal law, by dealing with vagrants and beggars. And especially in the German states, um, administrators had a great deal of power and were, on the whole, conscientious and university-educated managers dedicated to the public good. There was the odd bad, bad apple, but on the whole, they were doing their best in a rather fussy way. People often felt that the regulations were um, too detailed, rather as we feel about health and safety regulations now. Yeah. But the creation of public order was something very important. Um, it included health and hygiene, for example, um, for which nowadays we all benefit. So 
three things, an intellectual movement, a much larger change in outlook or mentality, and thirdly, the efforts of rulers and administrators to improve the quality of human life. And so what kind of dates are we talking here and which countries are we talking about primarily? Well, in my book on the Enlightenment, um, the dates are 1680 to 1790, and these are not quite plucked out of the air. In the 1680s, you have, first of all, the publication of Newton's Principia Mathematica, an absolutely epoch-making work of of mathematics and science, which um, explained the construction of the physical universe. There are plenty of popular expositions of Newton because the original is really accessible only to mathematicians. And Newton was, in many ways, the presiding genius of the Enlightenment. Um, From Newton, people drew a picture of the universe as a divinely created order, which everything was well-planned and had its place. So that's 1687. 1688 is very very often cited as the beginning of the Enlightenment, though that's rather arbitrary. That was the year of what's called the, the Glorious Revolution, when James II was of England was deposed, and Will and William of Orange was invited over from Holland to take his place on the throne, founding a new dynasty. That's also an epoch-making date, because the idea that one dynasty had a God-given right to rule, was simply put aside. And instead, the principle of utility, you get the best person for the job to be king, was put in its place. And thirdly, a third reason for beginning in the 1680s is the work of, of, of Pierre Bale, a French Protestant driven, driven into exile, um, who worked in Holland and published a number of works, beginning with um, um, Thoughts on the Comet, um, uh, criticising superstition and advancing um, rational arguments. The comet was the one that we now know as Halley's Comet. It produced a great deal of panic, and Bale puts forward all sorts of sensible arguments to the effect that comets are merely natural phenomena and that nobody should be frightened of them. And your third question was, where? Well, first of all, we have to look to urban centres, especially Paris, where large numbers of people, of educated people gathered, and where newspapers and journals were published. We have to think of what's been called the, the public sphere, what we would now call the media, through which people communicated. The media saw an explosion in the in the eighteenth century. Um, um, publications like the Spectator and the Tatler had an immensely wide readership, and these diffused d- diffused Enlightenment thought, including all sorts of practical advice of the conduct of conduct of one's daily life. And cities also provided venues for like-minded people to meet especially in coffee houses, uh, which um, first appeared in Western Europe in 1652. That was when the first coffee house was founded in London, in Oxford in 1655. And 
In Paris, the, fir the first famous one, the Café Procope, opened its doors in, I think, 1686. But you have to think of other ways in which um, um, like-minded people get together. The universities are one, and especially in, in Protestant countries, the universities were very important. I have in mind Scotland, which had five universities when England had two, the Netherlands, which likewise had five universities, and of course the German states. Um, every German ruler of a territory of any size thought it important to have a university on his territory, primarily to train professional people and administrators, lawyers and clergymen, but of course the university developed and branched out. So the universities were easily became centres of enlightenment. But we mustn't think only of cities. In, in, in England and France, there are plenty of provincial centres of enlightenment. People who wanted to educate themselves got together, founded local libraries. Um, you, can, you can still visit the, the um, library in Newcastle founded in the Enlightenment. There are provincial societies for self-education self in, for example, Newcastle, Bristol, Birmingham, even Spalding in Lincolnshire. And the, these, these were extremely important. In France, there were lots of provincial academies, as they were called, which were partly for, for social, but mainly for intellectual purposes. In Germany and the Netherlands, there were lots of, 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 of re reading societies. Books were expensive, so people clubbed together to share them. Now, uh, my next, our next question, uh, Richie, this one comes from Brendan Mitchell, who's also on Facebook, and that is, was the Enlightenment in inevitable? Now, I, I think I'd probably like to reshape that a little bit to what caused the Enlightenment? What were the forces that brought it into being? It's very hard to say that anything is inevitable, but among the preconditions, you'd have to name, first of all, the, the Reformation. The division of the church from being a monolith in Western Europe into a, into a number of factions, none of which could claim to have could could convincingly claim to have sole authority. But of course, they made the claim. Another precondition, and I think um, I can answer this question by telling a little story. Another precondition was that Western Europe was emerging from a series of terrible religious wars. There were the French Wars of Religion in the late 16th century. There was the English Civil War, which of course spread throughout what people now call the archipelago. And in Germany, there was the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648, which actually destroyed one third of the population. People felt about these things as we feel about the Second World War and the Holocaust. They said, never again. Now, a major cause of these wars was, was, was religious disputes. And people sought for a common ground which would put an end to religious disputes. Instead of theological questions, to which nobody knew the answer anyway, they, tr they tried to transfer the centre of religion from theology to, to, to morality. 
Nobody knew the answers to abstruse theological questions, but it was much easier to know what was right and wrong behaviour. To, to give an example, one of the important Enlightenment figures in Germany, Lessing, wrote a play in 1779 called Nathan der Weise, Nathan the Wise. Nathan is a wise Jew, living during the Crusades, who is summoned by the Sultan Saladin to say, as he's the wise, which of the three Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, is the true one? Well, this, of course, is an extremely awkward question. <laughs> and Nathan answers it by telling a parable known as the Parable of the Rings. A man had a ring which made his possessor beloved in the sight of God and man. He had three sons. He gave them each a ring. They wondered which the true ring and which, which were facsimiles. They took the question to a judge who said, behave as if you had the true ring and thus make yourself beloved in the sight of God and man. So, the question, which religion is right, is just a non-question. Any religion will do, as long as it promotes um, good and humane behaviour. And that was a, an outlook to which the, the Enlightenment increasingly declined. But another factor you have to think about is the study of the Bible. Um, the Bible, whatever else it may be, is a book which had authors and was copied and which existed in a number of different versions. Already at the time of the Reformation, Erasmus, a great um, upholder of religious toleration, made an edition of the Greek New Testament based on the available manuscripts and found they varied from each other quite a lot and also, uh, also at some point People had interpolated bits in order to advance particular religious doctrines. And the certain ideas supposedly essential to Christianity, such as the idea of the Trinity, actually had no basis in the New Testament. The study of the Bible was taken further. Um, it was taken up in the Catholic Church because people wanted to show that the Protestants um, who, who appealed to the text of Scripture, were appealing to something unreliable, and the tradition by which the Catholics swore was much better. Um, but, of course, um, that, that backfired. Um, and <clears throat> it turned out that um, it was very difficult to establish an absolutely authentic text of the Bible. Not only that, but people came to question many of the events recorded or reported in the Bible, especially the miracles in the New Testament. What sort of, what sort of evidence was there? Um, where the, the eyewitnesses lived a very long time ago, they weren't around to be questioned. Was the Bible the word of God? Was everything equally important? Was when Paul asks Timothy to bring him back his cloak, is that the word of God? So, although Bible was always regarded with great respect, it was increasingly treated as just another book which came into being the way secular books do and which contained, contained mistakes. I make so much of this because you have to realise that to the Enlightenment, religion 
was an absolutely central issue. Once you begin questioning the Bible, it's easy also to question the divine right of rulers. As I said, apropos 1688, it's possible to abandon the idea that a king has a sacred right to rule and to think instead that the king ought to rule in the way most beneficial for his subjects. And in the 18th century, and this is absolutely crucial to the Enlightenment, kings themselves came to share this idea. Frederick the Great of Prussia, who came to the throne in 1740, and was very long-lived, he died in 1786, said that as a king, he was the first servant of his people. He was one of the enlightened absolutists, alongside Catherine the Great in Russia and Joseph II in Austria, all dedicated to the service of the people. Their efforts weren't always appreciated, but um, they all regarded kingship as a responsibility which they had to exercise in a practical way for the common good. So they have a series of steps through which the Enlightenment emerged. That takes us nicely on to our next question, uh, which is from today's Rewind on Instagram. And that question is, who opposed the Enlightenment? So, so I guess it's a good time to talk about the reaction of the church and of autocracies. I mean, what, to what extent was the Enlightenment um, regarded as a threat to the established order? Okay. Well, there's plenty of opposition, especially from the churches. Um, the Catholic Church in Catholic countries had a great deal of power and was able to pressure the civil authorities into banning books. Many Enlightenment texts were banned, and when a book was banned, it was burnt in public and also, also, also um, 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 lacerated, that its copies were pierced with a sword. And this was done, done in public. So, for example, Rousseau's um, hand, treatise on education, Emile, suffered this treatment, and Rousseau had to flee abroad to Switzerland. Or, another book which I hope to talk about presently, the great um, anti-colonial text, The Histoire des Deux Indes, The History of the East and West Indies, suffered similar treatment. But we mustn't think that only the Catholic Church was given to persecution. In Scotland, um, the General Assembly, which meets once a year, had a great deal of influence. And there's the notorious case of John Simpson, a professor of theology at Glasgow, who was condemned by the Assembly for daring to, to say that since God loved humanity, more people would be saved than damned. The official view was the great majority of mankind would be damned and suffer tortures forever. Simpson, fortunately, had protection from a noble patron, so he retained his university chair. A few, a few years later, the Assembly threatened the philosopher David Hume, notorious as an atheist, with condemnation, but they had no actual power over him and he was able to brush aside their threats. But let me give the other side of the coin. There was also enlightenment within the Catholic Church. There was one famous enlightened pope, Benedict XIV, who flourished in the, in the 1740s. He encouraged science, he 
promoted a female mathematician to a chair at Bologna. He, de- he destroyed supposedly sacred relics, regarding them as superstitious. And even among the Jesuits, who were regarded as the shock troops of the papacy against heresy, there were outstanding scientists. One was um, the astronomer Maximilian Hell, who was a member of many learned societies, including the Royal Society of London. And another was, was um, Ruggiero Boscovich, who worked out an early at, um, atomic theory. So the Catholic Enlightenment, which has only really come to the attention of scholarship in recent years, was also quite important. Among opponents of the Enlightenment, I must also mention um, those who maintained that the Enlightenment was a conspiracy got up by the philosophes in Paris above all in order to undermine religion and society. These were a fringe group, but when the revolution broke out in 1789, they, they were able to say, there, I told you so. And they worked out the most elaborate and fantastic conspiracy theories, maintaining the Enlightenment was simply the latest version of an anti-Christian conspiracy going back to the early years of Christianity. Um, And the reaction against the Enlightenment, who was blamed wrongly for the French Revolution, was extremely powerful in the early 19th century. So, that's another set of um, opponents of the Enlightenment who were to exercise a great deal of influence. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The learned lady became a figure of fun. If you remember Mary in Pride and Prejudice, she is mocked by the author, for her, as well as by her father, for her intellectual aspirations. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Right, um, our next question, it comes uh, from MHFQ on Instagram. Um, And that question is, who were the most significant figures of the Enlightenment? And what ideas did they promulgate? Now, I I know you've already mentioned quite uh, quite a number of um, Enlightenment philosophers already, but I just wonder if you could pick out, sort of say, two or three that you think are the real, real big figures of this movement that we should talk about. The one figure who is absolutely indispensable, who is absolutely central to the Enlightenment, is Voltaire. That was a pseudonym. His real name was François Arouet. Um, 
And he was many things. He was a journalist. He was a playwright, very famous in his day, though his star has waned now. He was a writer of fiction, best known for Condide, which is actually a satirical narrative against the excessive optimism of some proponents of the Enlightenment. He was also a historian, a poet, and a a religious skeptic. He also intervened in public life to to address abuses. He's most famous for his intervention in the so-called Calas Affair. Jean Calas was a Protestant living in the south of France who was accused of murdering his son. It was alleged that this son had wanted to convert to Catholicism and the father murdered him to prevent it. No evidence was presented. In fact, it is extremely unlikely. But nevertheless, Callas was tortured to death. He was, he was broken on the wheel. That is, his arms and legs were spread-eagled and the executioner broke his limbs with a hammer one by one. Voltaire heard of this when it was too late to save Callas' life, but he made a great public commotion, published treatises showing that Callas had been shamefully um, 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 maltreated and called on the authorities to rehabilitate him posthumously. Voltaire intervened in other, other such cases and earned a reputation for public spirit. I can say much more about Voltaire, but time is limited. I'm going to mention next another Frenchman who could easily be overlooked. That is Denis Diderot. Um, Diderot was the main originator and editor of the great Enlightenment project, the the Encyclopédie. This was an encyclopedia, not only of um, historical and literary knowledge, but also of trades and professions. Every practical skill was described with lots of um, very beautiful illustrations. You could learn from it um, how to make and operate a printing press, how to be a blacksmith, how to make a pin. It described the 18 different operations you need to make a pin. In fact, this was very useful to Adam Smith, who quotes the article called Pin in The Wealth of Nations to show how the division of labour works. If one person made a pin by himself, it would take all day. If 18 people do it, they can make lots of pins in a single day. Now, this was a great step in the democratisation of knowledge. First of all, it made knowledge accessible. Second, it maintained that um, practical knowledge is just as important and just as dignified as book learning. But the Encyclopédie was persecuted by the authorities the first seven volumes suffered the fate I described. They were burned in public. Diderot had to carry on the project um, secretly, and the later volumes were dated from Neuchâtel in Switzerland as a kind of blind. Diderot wrote fiction. He wrote extraordinary um, witty essays um, on philosophical questions, and he collaborated with the Abbé Reynal on a work that I just mentioned, The History of the East and West Indies, this is a wonderful book. It's not much read at the present day, although it should be. Um, it appeared in ten massive volumes. The third edition, the one I used, 
1781, and it, it traces the history of European conquests and colonizations, beginning with the Portuguese in America and Asia, carrying on with the Spanish conquests of Central and South America, which for that period were a cardinal example of mass murder, right. and going on through the activities of the British, Dutch, and French East India companies, and ending by celebrating the American Revolution, which was then progress as, as, as the first um, successful anti-colonial revolt. And thirdly, um, I can't forbear to mention D David Hume, who is certainly one of the most important modern philosophers. His first book, The Treatise of Human Nature, was devoted to what was called the science of man. It was a study of what the title announces, human nature. It asks how we can know things. It's a paradoxical book because it uses reason to dismantle reason. Hume shows that we actually have no final rational justification for many of the things we think we know. We don't actually know that event A causes event B. We don't actually know that the sun will rise tomorrow. We simply rely on our experience. Right. Talking further about human nature, Hume plays great reliance on the concept of sympathy and on emotion. He writes the famous sentence, reason is and ought only ever to be the slave of the passions. Now, once again, he's making a paradox, but it's also a serious philosophical point. His point is that reason can't make you do anything. To do anything, you have to want to do it. Wanting to do something is an emotion, a passion. So really, we are governed in all practical ways by our passions, our emotions. Now, I must say that Hume blotted his copybook in a way that's had a lot of publicity in recent years, and I'm afraid should do, because he was actually a, ra a racist. In, in his essay of national character, he has a footnote saying, and I quote, I'm apt to suspect the Negroes, that's his word, the Negroes, to be naturally inferior to the whites. Now, his contemporaries blamed him for saying this. He was rebuked by other philosophers. And it has, understandably, caused great indignation in the present day. A building where I attended many classes as an undergraduate, the David Hume Tower in Edinburgh, has now had his name changed to Number 20 George Square. Now, without defending Hume at all for this unacceptable view, I will say that it is a tiny part of his work and doesn't reduce his importance and standing as a philosopher. Okay, moving on to our next question. And this is um, this is returning to Instagram, and this is from Anna Fleur de Mont. Um, she wants to know, uh, to what extent is uh, this a westernised idea? And um, there's a question on Twitter as well from Diogo Morgada, which is kind of related. His question is, did the Enlightenment have any influence outside of Europe? How was it received in Persia and China, for example? And I guess these are quite important questions, aren't they? So, uh, is there a danger that we 
that by placing too much emphasis on the Enlightenment, that we're kind of being overly Western centric. Of course, of course, there is such a danger. Um, I think I think the story will, will go something like this. In the nineteenth century, um, a number of people in Asia realized that in order to survive in the modern world, they had in turn to modernize and learn lessons from Europe and America. In the late 19th century, um, many Asian countries do their best to learn the lessons of modernization. Japan is perhaps the most um, um, dramatic example. Um, but after the First World War, certainly the Middle East suffered many blows at the hands of the, of the Western powers. The Ottoman Empire was split up into a number of smaller states, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, etc., and, and, uh, and Iraq. Well, this naturally didn't, um, didn't breed good feeling towards the West. Moreover, some westernizing powers, um, Turkey under Kemal Atatürk and Persia under Reza Shah, were also military dictatorships. So while they modernized, spread education and literacy, they also enforced the rule by oppression. The present-day um, Islamist reaction in the Middle East is very much a reaction against forced, forced modernization, is a kind of counter-enlightenment and very understandable. So I think one shouldn't talk of exporting the enlightenment wholesale. Um, Non-Western countries don't really need our exports. They can enlighten themselves given favorable circumstances. And what we have exported, especially to the Middle East, is unfortunately something quite different. We have a question here um, on Instagram um, from Trace CA, and that's, did women benefit from the Enlightenment? And I wonder if I could broaden this out a bit. I mean, many people would argue that progress in terms of gender, sexual and racial equality over the past few centuries has been somewhat patchy. But, but, but to what extent have Enlightenment ideas contributed to the progress that has been made? In the long run, a great deal. But in the 18th century... I'm sorry to say the Enlightenment didn't do much for, for women. In fact, if anything, the cause of women went back. Right, OK. What, why was that? Well, um, I talked earlier about the Enlightenment's attempt to find a unified science of humanity in which the mind and the body, reason and the emotions, were closely linked. Um, in the 17th century, on the other hand, you had philosophical conceptions, like that of Descartes, according to which the mind and body were separate, and the link between them was mysterious. It is therefore possible to say, using a catchphrase of the time, the mind has no sex. That is, women's intellectual activity is not in the least impaired by the fact that they are women. And that goes along with, with the presence in the 17th and early 18th centuries, of a number of female intellectuals, such as one who I mentioned, 
without naming her earlier, earlier the, ma- the mathematician Laura Bassi, who became a professor at Bologna. But in the late 18th century, it was maintained that um, in women, the emotions predominated. Intellectual women were unfeminine, and they were very often the subject of mockery and caricature. The, the learned lady became a figure of fun. If you remember Mary in Pride and Prejudice, she is mocked by the author, for her, as well as by her father, for her intellectual aspirations. Um, it was, it was a, long, a long time, a long struggle before the idea of equality would take effect to, to the benefit of women. We have to look to the history of feminism in the 19th century for that. There are isolated spokesmen and spokeswomen for female emancipation. My favourite is a, an almost forgotten writer at the beginning of the 18th century called Judith Drake, who argued that since men had stronger bodies than women, men ought to do the hard manual work and women should do, all, should do the intellectual tasks. But this, this didn't find much response. Right, okay. Um, so it's only gradually that Enlightenment, thanks to people like Wollstonecraft and, and the, their, their followers, um, that, that, did, that much was done for the cause of, of women. And finally, Richie, what does the future look like for the Enlightenment? I mean, it's, it's, it's been argued that it's coming under threat from postmodernism, maybe a resurgence in religious fundamentalism, a crisis in faith among the Western democracies. What do you say to that? Well, I say, first of all, A, that the Enlightenment is not a package. The Enlightenment is really a series of arguments among people of different values. For example, some Enlighteners campaigned against the, against the death penalty, but there was also an Enlightened case for the death penalty. Um, I'd say that various things that we value nowadays, which we trace back to the Enlightenment, are in, in varying degrees under threat. And we have to hold on, above all, to the idea of thinking for oneself and, what's also very important, the idea of actually looking at the facts, looking at the empirical world around us, and basing our conclusions on what the facts say. The new industry of fact-checking is therefore very welcome. And we owe to the Enlightenment an enormous strengthening of the scientific spirit, which is above all um, empirical. And science is self-correcting. There are many bad ideas that at one time or another are upheld by scientists, but um, eventually they they proved not to work and 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 they and they and they and they exploded. Um, science is above all an an enlightened activity. Um, I think too that we we very easily um, underestimate the way in which enlightened enlightened ideas have taken hold. Um, I mentioned the enlightenment it was also the age of sympathy. Think how concerned we are nowadays about about human rights. It's true that human rights are often not respected, but I take comfort 
from something, something that Kant said about the French Revolution. He said that, yes, the French Revolution had gone horribly wrong with the reign of terror, but the important thing was that many thousands of people now accepted the ideals of the revolution, and once the ideals of freedom, equality, and liberty are, are in the world, they may be threatened, submerged, but they can't perish. That was Richie Robertson. His book, The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness, is available now, published by Penguin. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Adrian Waldridge about meritocracy.